This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. This is Drew Dawkin. WealthFest, the Weekly Bull and Bear, is back on for Season 3. We have Alex Altman, who's the head of equity trading strategy at Citibank here, joining us today as a special guest. Alex, thanks so much for your time. It's much appreciated. Uh, and with that, we'll get into it. I mean, according to a recent National Association for Business Economist survey, we saw that 80% of economists who were surveyed thought that there would be a one in four chance of a double dip recession. Uh, what are your thoughts on the likelihood of the double dip recession and what metrics should we be looking at? Uh, we've certainly seen somewhat of a sell-off over the last week. Great. Well, thank, thanks for having me on. I would say that the the odds, it depends on how you define you know, double dip. If we're talking about the classical definition of a recession being you know, the, the economist measure of two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, it becomes a little bit murky because... For example, in 2015, 2016, we had all the hallmarks of a recession, but we never actually registered a technical recession because we didn't see negative GDP growth. But we saw negative ISM, we saw a collapse in oil prices, and so on and so forth. And so I think we need to, if we move away from that very technical definition of a recession and to say, look, are we likely to have a period of relatively sluggish growth um, you know, after this you know, Q3 bounce? Uh, the answer is probably yes, and the and it will be yes with two big contingencies. Uh, contingency one will be what is the fiscal response of governments, not just in the U.S. but globally, continue to look like going forward? And I'm sure we'll address that point separately. And um, the other one will be, um, of course, uh, what will be um, the state of monetary policy going forward. Um, and you know these these two factors uh, are going to be absolutely critical, and obviously sitting underneath, or I guess maybe on top of both of those points, is what is the likelihood that we develop a vaccine and return to a degree of normality in in the economy? After all, this crisis, this economic crisis, was triggered by a, a medical crisis, and therefore will most likely be solved to some degree. By a medical solution, so we've got you know those two pivots to which or levers, I guess that that the economy can be stimulated to ensure we don't slip back into a recession, um, and they they in turn obviously are going to be dictated by uh, whether society feels it can return back to normal. But in the absence of a vaccine, and I, I'm not particularly bearish on on a vaccine um, introduction, I guess I'm more concerned about the fact that a vaccine efficacy will not be fantastic. And then what we end up with is something similar to um, a new normal where COVID becomes a seasonal phenomenon like the flu. Um, and in doing so, that just takes time for society to normalize around those, that, those new measures. Um, the best parallel I can give you, and it's, it's, it's a very small one, but Nonetheless, it sort of gives you an idea of just how long these things can take to normalize was Zika. Um, now, something which people don't even talk about, right? But Zika, as you may recall, was obviously a, a, a virus which was um, 
never proven to obviously create problems for complications for pregnant women and, and newborn babies. And yet the CDC provided guidelines, don't travel to these countries. And it caused a huge disruption to the tourism industry for, for those select countries. And yet the CDC never provided change in guidance as to whether you could travel again. They just simply just stopped commenting on it. And eventually people over a period of two years normalized that process. Now, COVID is clearly far more dangerous uh, than, than Zika is, and obviously far more widespread and far more infectious. And yet it has um, the, the normalization process. It uses a similar template. I suspect we won't ever get uh, an announcement from CDC saying that 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 this virus has gone away. Uh, and so therefore, the scope of us going back to the original question of having this not necessarily recession, but this very sluggish recovery because the fact that society is adjusting to this new normal just might just take some time. In August, before this recent market volatility, we saw the S&P 500 really experienced one of the fastest return to, to a record. And, but we've seen other major global benchmarks uh, in Asia and Europe <clears throat> that have underperformed the American equity markets. Um, even though these countries have had a better response and a better job dealing with, with the coronavirus outbreak. Why is this? Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a contentious point that because um, you, you have to factor in the currency here as well. And um, I apologize for nitpicking slightly, but it is an important point because if you actually look at if we just look at things like a, a broad-based uh, MSCI EM and we look at that versus S&P, or if we look at even um, stock 600 in, in Europe and currency adjust that back into dollars and compare that to against S&P, the performance has actually been quite comparable uh, since March anyway. Uh, the beginning of the year, pre-COVID, yes, the US was, was on a tear and uh, and was having a significant move. But actually, since then, we haven't really seen a significant outperformance of um, of uh, the, of the US versus versus other regions. Um, and, you know, for example, yes, it, it, the US outperformed in March and April, but then it sort of gave it back in in, in sort of uh, May and June. That was applicable to both um, both Europe and emerging markets. I, I don't have the data to hand on Japan, um, and so it, it, it's, there's this unusual phenomenon where some of the U.S. outperformance or perceived outperformance um, is being eaten away by 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 the depreciating dollar, uh, and I think that's an important um, point to remember when thinking about you know regional allocation because it, it's actually something which is very very close to my heart at the moment in terms of thinking about that sort of global equity allocation. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yes, the S&P did have its fastest bounce back ever. And um, there's obviously big debate at the moment right now, which is what point of the cycle are we in, right? Are we still late cycle to your point or question earlier? Are we, could we have a double dip recession? Or are we actually now early cycle? And there's a few points to unpack from that, but just trying to keep it as short and concise as possible. If indeed we are early cycle, then a couple of things. Number one, 
it would mean that that would be the fastest ever move from late cycle to early cycle in the history of economics. Never, never, never mind modern day financial markets, but the history of economics. And so that's not to say it's not real. It's just that it basically means we're in this unprecedented period where it's going to be very hard to, to, to navigate. And if it is early cycle, well, then some of the things that should be early cycle should be rallying. So notably value. And this is, this is really the center of, of what my team has been discussing extensively for the past couple of months now. You know, value, i.e. cheap stocks versus expensive ones. And value doesn't just mean buying cyclicals. But theoretically, if you have had an early cycle period, think of 2009 as an example, um, then value should be rallying. And it's done okay. I would say actually in the face of the probably one of the biggest tech rallies we've had in history, you know, that and dot com, uh, value has not sort of deteriorated any further. It sort of made its lows back in April and has actually bounced a little bit since then. So it, the equity market showing tentative signs of, of early cyclicality. And but the other way to think about value is regionally. And back to your point in terms of the US outperforming. What's interesting is that if you actually look in currency neutral terms, it hasn't outperformed. Or to put another way, non-US stocks have performed more or less as well as US stocks have if you go back over the past three, four months and then currency neutralize them. If you are long non-US and you're short US um, in, in the currency neutral format, you are long value. Japan is value. Europe is value. EM is value. S&P is not value. It is growth. So that construct of non-US stocks now essentially keeping pace with US stocks for the past few months is again an illustration that value almost seems like it's beginning to work. And we've had a lot of client interest in this, in this concept, uh, be it making sure that their portfolios are set up in the right way or making sure they're not caught offside if we did get a real value rip. And so that's why I think it's important to think about this dynamic because you know, again, you're absolutely right. Optically, it looks like the US is on fire. We're making new all-time highs, um, and other regions are not making new all-time highs. So how is it possible? And again, it's because of that currency effect. So um, you know, I'd urge listeners to sort of think about that dynamic um, when, when actually um, doing their allocations, just because it looks like the US is getting this whole FOMO trade. Um, in reality, it's actually quite narrow leadership, and a lot of that performance is, is actually being eroded by the uh, the weakening dollar. Well, that's a great reminder. Uh, we sometimes overlook that, and especially if we think about the recent rally, it's been very sector-driven, especially with tech. And say over the last week, we saw maybe a little bit of a of a sell-off. But we look at the the large tech companies, you know, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Facebook, Microsoft. They're all up double digits compared to some lagging sectors: industrials, banks, and energies. You know, is this going to be a, a long term across these sectors where we're going to see? tech significantly up and other sectors lagging uh, and then I don't think we'll have time to get into the energy sector where we, where we have oil but what does this mean for, for such a, a sector driven rally right now? Well I mean this, this is it what you highlight is so important to thinking about equity markets or S&P specifically because 
you've got all kinds of issues when you've got tech that represents 27% of the S&P plus your discretionary and your communication stocks, which are essentially tech businesses. Such a huge amount sits on the shoulders of so few companies. In fact, we've never had any time in history where the top five names in the S&P are accounting for uh, such a, a large percentage weight of an index. Um, I think they're around about 22 to 23%, or at least they were before the sell-off last Thursday. And similarly, those names are, and if you include Tesla in that, in the NASDAQ, you're up to over 50%, right? So there's all kinds of issues with such a degree of concentration. Um, for me, there are, there are sort of two main points. The first one is simply tracking. If you're a index tracking or a mutual fund, often you've got constraints where um, concentration risk thresholds are getting breached. And whilst you're allowed to hold those weights uh, as, as a tracking fund passively, um, as soon as you sell down any position to try and reduce the weight, uh, you can't buy it back. So there's this natural, almost short gamma element to people chasing their tails as these weights go up and up and up. The second aspect is about breadth, which was the case in the late 90s as well, where you obviously had this enormous tech rally then, but you had a deteriorating breadth profile. Again, typical of a late stage rally. Going back to my point earlier, are we late cycle or are we early cycle? Very unclear at the moment. But what we've noticed is that with that tech leadership, to your point, it hasn't really been accompanied to the magnitude by you know, those traditional early cycle sectors. And so that has, in turn, has generally meant that breadth has been poor. And what I mean by breadth is, I mean, I actually mean the amount of stocks going up versus the amount of stocks going down. And that is an issue because if breadth is narrow, uh, which has been the case, then we have typically found that markets are unable to hold on to their gains. So, this again ties back in with that concept about value earlier. And I don't just mean value again, you know, cyclicals versus defensive, any of that. I'm just talking about if breadth does not increase, which needs to therefore include value sectors. And we've actually seen that earlier this year. Anytime where breadth has increased, it's been associated by value outperforming. Um, if breadth does not increase, then the market will basically go down. So, you know, how does this end? Usually ends badly. You know, I hear, you know, the, the, the locks of Irving Fisher back in 1929 saying, you know, stocks are going to be structured in a higher PE. Nonsense. It's just nonsense. I don't care what the, what the interest rate <laughs> environment is. It's just not, there's just, this is not how the world works. <laughs> right, there's a, there's a higher degree of earnings earnings uncertainty. There's a higher degree of earnings uncertainty today than there has been uh, for a long period of time. Therefore, I don't see why my equity risk premium should come down dramatically as a function of that. Uh, so, you know, the whole bond equity arbitrage I think is nonsense. But the 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 the, the reality for the tech sector is is that um, I have no issue with sort of tech continuing to provide to provide a degree of leadership in the market. If we look at the way our, our lives are working. You know, what do we do on a day-to-day -day basis? We order off Amazon, we watch Netflix, we use our iPhone. Like, there's no surprise that these stocks are the biggest companies in the world. But there are limitations to that. 
and um, and those limitations are hitting their buffers right now because the rest of the market is not participating. Um, and again, if history has been any guide, which it usually is, um, it cannot sustain uh, that wave ad infinitum. Sounds good. Well, Alex, you know, we thank you so much for your time. Um, for all your for all listeners, thank you. Please like and subscribe. And uh, we'll be back on a regular schedule next week. Um, thanks again for tuning in to Season 3. Thanks very much, guys. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.